Yeah, so as mentioned, I am here at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Health, where I have an integrative oncology practice that I've been doing since I graduated uh, from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Arizona in 2005. And I do have some disclosures. Uh, I uh, get honoraria and I have some stock options from companies that I consult with. So what is integrative cancer care? This quote, which is often attributed to William Osler, the father of modern medicine, actually dates further back to the Hebrew scribe, uh, Moses Maimonides. It is more important to know what sort of patient has a disease than what disease a patient has. And this was recently reiterated in uh, the ASCO post from the American Society of Clinical Oncology. The patient we see and the person we may not. Although we treat the patient in front of us proficiently, we sometimes can be oblivious to the person behind the patient. While the patient carries the diagnosis, it is the person within who carries the patient. This becomes important because it is the person and the vicissitudes of his or her life that determine the patient's presence, absence, and behavior. So integrative cancer care, in my opinion, is the rational evidence-informed combination of conventional therapy with complementary interventions into an individualized therapeutic regimen that addresses the whole body, the whole person, body, mind, and spirit with cancer. And a few things I just wanted to point out. First of all, I said with complementary interventions and not alternative, as my introduction stated. Alternative means instead of, complementary means with. So the old term that we used to use, CAM, complementary and alternative medicine, is basically internally self-contradictory because you can't be complementary and alternative at the same time. So what we do is integrate complementary uh, therapies with conventional care. And I say, you'll notice informed is italicized because much of medicine and certainly most of oncology demands evidence-based, that is published in the medical literature and generated by randomized placebo-controlled double-blind clinical trials. Again, much of what I'm gonna talk about is more evidence-informed than evidence-based because clinical trials are not really possible with some of the things that we're gonna talk about. So integrative oncology provides relationship-centered care. Uh, I always ask the patient to tell me their story. And the average physician waits 17 seconds before interrupting a person. But if I'm asking for the story, I'm listening. And that already uh, generates a relationship that's patient-centered. Again, as I mentioned, Integrative oncology integrates conventional and complementary methods of treatment and prevention in an effort to activate the body's innate healing response and allow it to fight off cancer in addition to the conventional treatments using natural, less invasive interventions whenever possible. Integrative oncology engages the mind, body, spirit, and the community. Rarely do I see a patient who comes alone. Cancer affects more than the patient. So community is important. Integrative oncology encourages providers to model healthy lifestyles for their patients. So even though it's against OSHA regulations, I do drink my green tea while I'm seeing my patients. 
even in the exam room. Uh, integrative oncology focuses attention on lifestyle choices for disease prevention and maintenance of health, maintaining that healing is always possible even when curing is not. So who are the patients that I see in my integrative oncology practice over the last 18 years? Very rarely do I see people who are seeking alternative therapies to conventional cancer care. Thus, most of the patients do know that I have been a conventional oncologist for the past 40 years, and I believe in what I do. The majority of patients I see are seeking complementary therapies while undergoing conventional therapy to either mitigate the symptoms of its, their cancer or its treatment, or if they are finished with their therapy to prolong their remission. Similarly, the second largest group of folks I see are people seeking optimal survivorship care. And then again, similar to the first group uh, coming to seek alternatives when they run out of standard therapy, I rarely see people uh, seeking any possible uh, salvage therapy because I don't really have that. And we now have an integrative uh, palliative care doc, so I don't see many patients now uh, seeking integrative end-of-life care. So what are the goals of my uh, interaction with my patients? Number one, when you hear you have cancer, your locus of control has been ripped from out from underneath you, and you're now at the mercy of the surgeon, the radiation oncologist, the medical oncologist, and even the chemotherapy nurse. So one of my main goals is to return to the patient some sense of control so that they can participate in this journey. We now know that inflammation is a major cause of degenerative diseases of aging, dementia, cancer, and heart disease. And uh, there is much that we can do uh, to decrease ongoing inflammation. And when you decrease inflammation, you actually unload the body's immune system so that it can engage more aggressively in the fight against cancer. When I ask patients to tell me their story, many patients weave a story as if stress caused their cancer. I don't think stress in and of itself causes cancer, but stress is not good for cancer or anything else for that matter. It's adrenaline or epinephrine, which kills our lymphocytes, the building block cells of the immune system, and it's cortisol, a steroid hormone, which is an immune suppressant. So decreasing stress is one of the goals of my uh, visit. And finally, many patients leave my in consultation initially and say, gee, Dr. Abrams, you're the first person that's given me any hope. And it's not like I said, you don't have cancer or you're not gonna die. It's that I've given people things that they themselves can do uh, in their fight against cancer and that increases hope. So what are these things that people can do to increase their sense of control? Number one, controlling weight is critical because we now believe that 40% of all cancer in the United States today is related to overweight or obesity. How do we control weight? By altering the diet and increasing physical activity. We also look at uh, and discuss use of appropriate supplements. The breath, is the link between the mind and the body because until I mentioned it, we were all breathing autonomically without thinking about it. But now that I've mentioned it, we can be aware again that we can control the rate of our breathing and the depth of inspiration and expiration. And that is sort of the link to the mind-body interventions, yoga, hypnosis, 
meditation. Uh, for people that need a little bit more than the breath, we talk about guided imagery. And as I mentioned, rarely do I see a patient who comes alone. And I remind patients that they do have a built-in support group of their family and friends and ask them to engage uh, with that support. I ask all my patients before I examine them whether they were raised with any religious beliefs. Most people were, but often they have lapsed. More people do consider themselves spiritual, and I ask them to connect with their religious or spiritual background. I tell all of the patients that I see here at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Health that cancer is like a weed, and in fact, someone else is taking care of their weed, and it's my job to work with the garden to make their soil as inhospitable as possible to growth and spread of the weed. So I do that by looking to see how they fertilize their soil. That is what they eat and what supplements they take. And the importance of diet, I think, cannot be overstated. This is from an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looking at the state of US health, 1990 to 2016, the burden of disease, injuries, and risk factors among the states. And the number one risk factor for death turns out to be dietary risks. And this surpasses tobacco use and high blood pressure and does not in fact include high body mass index, overweight or obesity or physical activity. So if you put physical activity, overweight or obesity and dietary risks together, we are off the chart. Unfortunately, this article in JAMA does not tell us what dietary risks are, but it refers us to an older article in Lancet, where we learn that the 14 components of dietary risk include diets that are low in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, milk, fiber, calcium, seafood, omega-3 fatty acids, and other polyunsaturated fatty acids, and diets that are high in red meat, processed meats, sugar-sweetened beverages, trans fats, and sodium. So what I rely on when I have my conversation with my patients are the guidelines from the American Institute for Cancer Research, World Cancer Research Fund. And these are guidelines for cancer prevention. However, number 10 says, after a cancer diagnosis, follow our recommendations if you can. These guidelines are in continuous update, but they are published about once a decade in a large uh, 500 page volume which reviews the literature supporting the guidelines. So the number one guideline is to be a healthy weight. And unfortunately, we as a nation are failing. Two thirds of the country are now overweight or obese. This map shows us uh, the prevalence of obesity among adults. That is a body mass index greater than or equal to 30. Uh, you can see these central states uh, have uh, 35 to 40% of their patients who are obese. The states that do best are Colorado, Hawaii, and on the East Coast, Massachusetts, as well as the District of Columbia. The uh, percentage of Americans who are overweight, that is a body mass index between 25 and 30, is also 30%. So again, only one third of us are normal weight. The CDC estimates, again, that overweight or obesity is now associated with 40% of all cancer in the United States, over 50% of cancer in women, a quarter of cancer in men, and two thirds of cancer in the elderly. More than 630,000 Americans are diagnosed 
with an overweight or obesity-associated malignancy. The American Institute for Cancer Research estimates that obesity-related excesses of these seven cancers uh, account for 115,000 preventable deaths a year in the United States. And you'll see that the largest number here is breast cancer. It's felt that 20% of breast cancer is related to overweight or obesity, generally estrogen receptor positive postmenopausal women, uh, but because so many women have breast cancer, uh, it is the largest number. Notice that 50% of endometrial cancer is felt to be related to overweight or obesity. The remainder of the malignancies are along the gastrointestinal tract, although interestingly, a quarter of renal cell carcinoma is felt to be related to overweight or obesity. And these are the other cancers where there's probably an increased risk uh, related to overweight or obesity. And interestingly, obesity and overweight decreases the risk of premenopausal breast cancer uh, for some reason. Well, how does body fat increase the risk of cancer? Well, for the estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, and endometrial cancer, fat produces estrogen, and that's what drives those two malignancies. In addition, body fat secretes chemicals that promote inflammation. And as I mentioned, inflammation impairs the body's own immunity. And as you know, the way we're treating many cancers nowadays is by unleashing the body's immune system uh, so that it can participate more aggressively in fighting off the cancer by using PDL1 uh, so-called checkpoint inhibitors. I think very importantly is the fact that too much body fat triggers insulin resistance, raising the levels of insulin and insulin-like growth factor, both of which promote inflammation and the growth factor is a growth factor for cancer cells as well. So in this schematic, we see insulin and insulin-like growth factor one combining with the insulin-like growth factor receptor which leads to intracellular changes that increase protein synthesis in the cancer cells, which allow it to uh, proliferate uh, more rapidly. And also this combination decreases apoptosis or programmed cell death. And this allows uh, cancer cells to thrive. So what about exercise? Uh, definitely we know that physical activity decreases the risk of breast, colon, and prostate cancer. And this is a study of exercise in cancer survivors. It's actually a meta-analysis of 16 breast and seven colorectal cancer studies that encompassed about 50,000 cancer survivors. The most physically active breast cancer survivors had lower rates of death from breast cancer, decreased 28%, as well as other causes decreased almost 50%. Similar uh, reductions were seen in the patients with colorectal cancers. And for survivors who re report an increase in physical activity after their diagnosis, also decreased their risk of death by about 40% compared to those who did not. This is another study uh, of 8,000 participants followed for over five years, and they, mounted, uh, they wore a hip-mounted accelerometer for seven days. Of these, 268 participants died of their cancer, and they found that a greater total sedentary time being physically inactive was associated with a greater risk of mortality. Uh, light activity decreased the risk 8% per, 8 per 30 minutes, and moderate to, vig to vigorous activity 
decreased the risk by 31%. More recently, an article looked at daily sitting time and cancer survival. This, uh, these investigators examined independent and joint associations of daily sitting time and leisure time physical activity with mortality in cancer survivors. They included 1,535 cancer survivors from the Ann Hayden study, uh, age 65, 60% women. The follow-up period of up to nine years uh, led to 114 of uh, 293 deaths being from cancer. Physical activity was associated with a lower risk of cancer mortality, decreasing at almost 70% compared to those who were inactive. Sitting greater than eight hours a day was associated with a higher cancer mortality, increasing the risk twofold compared to those who sat less than four hours a day. And inactivity and insufficient activity survivors sitting for more than eight hours a day had a five-fold increased risk of death. So physical activity is clearly important. The American College of Sports Medicine International Multidisciplinary Roundtable on Physical Activity and Cancer Prevention and Control uh, said that uh, moderate or effective exercise includes moderate intensity aerobic training at least three times a week for 30 minutes uh, for at least uh, eight to 12 weeks and the addition of resistance training at least two times a week using at least two sets of eight to 15 reps at least 60 percent of one uh, rep maximum and they broke down the benefits of aerobic versus resistance versus aerobic plus resistance exercise as shown here, all of them seem to reduce anxiety and decrease fatigue and lead to a better overall quality of life. Unfortunately, uh, the oncologist usually is not the one who talks about physical activity with the patient. And a study uh, found that the majority of non-small cell cancer patient survivors uh, desired advice from their uh, oncologist uh, regarding uh, physical activity. A survey of Canadian oncologists showed that about two-thirds did agree that physical activity was safe and beneficial, but only 42% ever recommended it to their patients and only a quarter within the past month. When an oncologist recommends physical activity, it results in an increase of 60 minutes of vigorous walking a week. And as we can see from the prior data, that will have a positive impact on survival. So the number one recommendation of the American Institute for Cancer Research is to be a healthy weight. And currently the 2018 guideline is not as specific as the 2007 guideline, which said be active for at least 30 minutes each day. The new one says, walk more, move more, sit less, which I think is a little bit uh, less helpful for the patient. They did divide the number three guideline, uh, which in 2007 said avoid sugary drinks into two separate guidelines, now shouting out fast foods. So the guideline says limit consumption of fast foods, particularly processed foods, high in added sugar, low in fiber, or high in fat. And they made a very important statement. 
Processed foods, high in fat, starches, or sugars, embody a cluster of characteristics that encourage excess energy consumption. For example, by being highly palatable, high in energy, affordable, easy to access, and convenient to store. So does that mean that they're necessarily unhealthy? So a study uh, done in France uh, used the uh, NutriScore derived from the nutrient profile system of the British Food Standards Agency. A score for each food was calculated using its 100 gram content of energy, sugar, saturated fat, sodium fiber, proteins, and fruits, vegetables, legumes, and nuts. Higher scores are associated with lower quality food. They looked at half a million adults in the European prospective investigation into cancer and nutrition, the so-called EPIC study. 10 European countries enrolled patients with median follow-up of 15 years. Cancers that developed in the cohort were breast, prostate, colon, and lung. High scores, that is poor food quality, were uh, chalked up in France, Germany, the UK, and Sweden. And low scores, more Mediterranean, Greece, Italy, Spain, and suddenly Norway out of the blue. And what they found was the higher score, that is poor quality food, more processed food, was associated with an increased risk of cancer, increasing the risk 7%. And higher scores were associated with a higher risk of colorectal cancer, hepatocellular can uh, carcinoma or liver cancer, postmenopausal breast cancer in women and lung, and a borderline increased risk of prostate cancer in men. There were also a higher risk of stomach and upper era digestive tract cancer, i.e. esophagus, uh, observed, but they did not reach statistical significance. Sugary drinks. So this year, they or in 2018, they changed the guideline to say, avoid sugar sweetened beverage. And I have actually complained to them saying that is incorrect. It is sugary drinks because you don't consider fruit juice necessarily to be a sugar sweetened beverage, but it is a sugary drink. Again, 100,000 participants in a French study, they were evaluated for their composition of sugary drink intake, and it did include 100% fruit juice, as well as artificially sweetened beverages, which not many of the French consume. And again, in this cohort of 100,000 people, uh, the cancers developed were breast, prostate, and colorectal cancer. There was a positive association between sugary drink consumption and overall cancer increased risk by 18%, breast cancer increased 22%, no association detected for prostate or colorectal cancer in this particular study. There was in fact an overall association of increased risk of cancer from 100% fruit juice, a 12% increase that was statistically significant. They did not see an art of, uh, increased risk in those consuming artificially sweetened beverages, but they did point out that the sample size of that cohort in the study was small. So when my patients asked me, should I consume this fruit juice of this exotic fruit, which I read someplace online is going to cure my cancer, I say, no, it's a sugary drink. So should we switch to diet soft drinks? Well, again, half a million people in the EPIC study higher all-cause mortality, 
among participants who consume greater than two glasses a day of artificially sweetened beverages compared to those who consumed less than one glass a month. And sugar-sweetened beverages increase deaths from digestive diseases, i.e. diabetes and related causes, and artificially sweetened beverages, 26% increased risk of death, mainly from circulatory disease. But what about cancer? Again, in the Nutrinet Sante study in France, uh, 24-hour dietary records, after adjusting for multiple confounding factors compared to non-consumers, higher consumers of to total artificial sweeteners had a higher risk of overall cancer. Again, a 13% increase risk. Aspartame, 15%. Uh, Acylsulfame, 13% were associated with the uh, highest increased risk of cancers. And these higher risks were observed for breast cancer uh, and obesity-related cancers, which hard to say if it's the sugar least, the artificially sweetened beverages increasing the cancer risk, or that these obese people were consuming these beverages in hopes of decreasing their caloric intake. There was no association with sucralose, uh, good news for people uh, who uh, consume that artificial sweetener, I guess. And the authors concluded in the study conducted last year that their findings suggest that artificial sweeteners and excessive sugar intake may be equally associated with cancer risk. So one of the positive guidelines, in fact, it may be the only positive guideline uh, from the American Institute for Cancer Research, World Cancer Research Fund, is to eat more of a variety of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and legumes. I'm a big fan of phytoestrogens, i.e. plant estrogens found in uh, soy, for example, as well as to a lesser extent in flaxseed. Uh, soy intake in Asians living in Asia, eating an Asian diet, leads to decreased risks of both breast and prostate cancer when those Asians move to Hawaii and eat a diet that's sort of halfway between uh, their uh, home diet and the standard American diet their risk increases. And when they move to the mainland and eat a standard American diet, their risk becomes equal to that of mainland uh, Caucasians. Cruciferous vegetables, flowers grow in the shape of a cross, have some of the most potent cancer-fighting chemicals uh, going. Uh, cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts jump to mind, but there are also cruciferous roots and green leafies cabbage, kale, collard green, bok choy, and arugula. These all contain a chemical, uh, sulforaphane, an indole three carbonyl, so potent at reducing the risk of cancer that we started to look at it as chemotherapy. Also for women with estrogen-driven cancers, uh, the cruciferous vegetables contain something called DIM, diindole methyl, something that changes a woman's estrogen from the type that fuels estrogen receptor positive cancer to the type that doesn't. So I believe we can never eat enough cruciferous vegetables. And I eat broccoli, tofu, and rice for breakfast. My other breakfast is mochi, which is just pounded brown rice. I puff it up in the oven, smear almond butter, and put a sweet potato on top of it because orange yellow vegetables are also good for you. When I don't have access to my oven, I usually take muesli, the only unsweetened cereal out there, mix it with walnuts and blueberries and use oat or almond milk. 
Season with ginger, garlic, onions, and turmeric. Turmeric, a very potent anti-inflammatory, probably also has some anti-cancer effect, <coughs> as do the other herbs I mentioned. Green tea. Polyphenols in green tea, second only to cruciferous vegetables in the potency of their cancer-fighting chemicals. Tea is actually the name of the beverage brewed from the tea leaf, uh, the Camellia sinensis or Chinese Camellia, and it's graded how, on how oxidized the leaf is before the beverage is brewed. White, green, oolong, black, and poo air. And the only two with the cancer-fighting chemicals are white and green. I drink four cups of green tea every morning. Omega-3 fatty acids found in deep cold water fish uh, and also some uh, fruits and vegetables or vegetables are also uh, recommended. One question that I always get from women with breast cancer, particularly those with estrogen receptor positive breast cancer is, is it safe to consume soy products since soy is a plant estrogen? Well, it is a plant estrogen, but it is much less potent than a woman's own estrogen and that it does not drive estrogen receptor positive cancers. A study done by Kaiser in the Life After Cancer Epidemiology Study followed 2000 breast cancer survivors for six years. 282 women had recurrences. Soy intake at levels comparable to those consumed in an Asian population, that is one serving of a whole soy food a day may in fact reduce the risk of recurrence in women, even those on tamoxifen. It does not appear to negate the effects of tamoxifen as many people were concerned. And this study was uh, confirmed in a large study uh, done in China, as well as a women's healthy eating and living analysis, all of them confirming the benefits of soy in women with breast cancer. I just wanna point out nuts. Nuts often get sort of a bad rap because they're fat, but they're good fat. And this uh, study published last year examined the association of nut consumption, both peanuts and tree nuts, with overall disease-free survival in 3,500 long-term survivors from the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study. Regular nut consumers had higher overall survival, 94%, compared to 89%, as well as disease-free survival. So promoting this modifiable lifestyle factor should be emphasized in breast cancer survivor guidelines, i.e. consume a handful of nuts every day. We also have discovered that nuts decrease the risk of colorectal cancer. Unfortunately, despite these recommendations, our diet here falls quite short on the recommended intake of fruits and vegetables each day. The CDC reports that only 12% of adults eat one and a half to two cup equivalents of fruit a day, and less than 10% eat two to three cup equivalents of vegetables a day. And the situation is more grim in younger adults with less than 10% consuming the fruit recommendation and 6.7% consuming the recommended amount of vegetables, and that's counting French fries and ketchup as two vegetables. Guideline number six says limit consumption of red and processed meats. And this shows you the linear relationship between red meat intake and uh, colorectal cancer in women. This is an old chart so that New Zealand and the United States have now been replaced by the Czech Republic and Japan. 
at the top because of the globalization of the standard American diet. In 2007, the guidelines said limit consumption of red meat and avoid processed meats, which I think is a better guideline because the World Health Organization considers processed meats as a class one carcinogen, no doubt about it. <clears throat> Bacon, salami, hot dog, sausage, anything you put on a pizza. Personally, I don't believe beef or pork are ever gonna be clean and the only red meat I'll eat is lamb because I picture it roaming the hills of Sonoma or New Zealand and not penned up like beef and pork. And I'll eat lamb maybe once a week or three times a month. I stay pretty much plant-based until dinner and that's when I eat animals. So one of the problems with animals is the transformation of our food chain that's occurred over the end of the last century. This is a slide from my friend and colleague, David, the late David Saravon Shriver, who was French, so he spelled pork differently. And he's looking at the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids in our diet. In the old days, that ratio was about two to one. Omega-6 fatty acids cause platelets to clump and our blood to clot. And we wanna have inflammation, uh, red, hot, tender, and swelling when we cut ourselves. You want your platelets to clump and you wanna get inflamed because that's part of normal healing. So omega-6 fatty acids promote inflammation and platelet clumping. Omega-3s are anti-inflammatory and lice platelet clumps. So in the old days, our diet had a ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 of about two to one. And you can see due to what we feed animals that this ratio has significantly changed, especially with eggs uh, over the past uh, last half of the century. So again, as I say, omega-6 fats are present in commercially raised meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs, also in uh, nuts, seeds, and vegetables. Whereas the omega-3s that are anti-inflammatory are found in deep cold water fish, as I mentioned, flax and hemp seed, grass-fed meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs, and some uh, nuts, particularly walnuts. <clears throat> but it's not just the omega-6 fatty acids, which are the concerns in red meat. Red meat has a lot of heme iron, and iron actually feeds cancer. I see so many patients who are anemic from their chemotherapy who tell me that they just started taking an iron supplement. I say, no, you are not anemic because you're iron deficient. You're anemic from your chemotherapy. Please stop your iron supplement because that does feed cancer. The processed meats have the nitrates, which are carcinogens. And then we in the United States like to barbecue. And when you burn flesh, that creates heterocyclic amines, which are also carcinogenic. I'll have a half pound double deluxe bacon steer burger, please. You want chemotherapy with that? Well, what about poultry? A half a million uh, middle-aged cancer-free Britons were followed, uh, 23,000 developed cancer with a mean follow-up of about six years. Red meat increased the risk of colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer. Processed meats increased the risk of colorectal cancer. Poultry also seemed to increase the risk of melanoma, and prostate cancer, 20% and 11%, as well as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, 25%. You gotta eat something, I guess. What about our intake of meats? This is from the NHANES uh, survey of about 50,000 
mean consumption of processed meats actually remained unchanged in the past 18 years, despite the warnings. Mean consumption of unprocessed red meat actually did decline, and mean consumption increased for poultry with no change for fish or shellfish, which actually should be, in my opinion, the animal products that we preferentially consume. This is a graph from an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, three years ago now by Walter Willett, Harvard's best nutrition scientist. And the article's on milk. In the middle of the article, there's a graph of all-cause mortality, i.e. death, associated with protein sources. And the dotted line at zero for reference is dairy. And below dairy is plants, poultry, and fish. And above dairy is red meat, eggs, and off-the-chart processed meats. So should we all become vegetarians? This is a study from Seventh-day Adventists, uh, generally a, a culture that uh, uh, encourages some uh, sort of vegetarian diet. And they looked at uh, vegetarian diet patterns and risk of colorectal cancer. And over the course of the follow-up of seven years, 380 cases of colon cancer and 110 rectal cancers were diagnosed. Uh, vegetarians versus non-vegetarians had a 22% decreased risk of colorectal cancer. Interestingly, the risk was not as low in the vegans, was only decreased 16%. And the lowest risk was actually seen in those who ate some fish, 43% reduction. Uh, so again, as I say, I think some animal products are worth consuming. The guidelines changed uh, in a good way, I think, for alcohol. Uh, I mentioned that I was a little upset about changing sugary beverages to sugar-sweetened drinks and changing avoid processed meats to limit processed meats. Well, in 2007, the alcohol uh, guideline said, if consumed at all, limit alcohol to two a day for men and one a day for women. And that seemed a bit dichotomous to me, if at all, two a day. They changed the guideline in 2018, so it now says for cancer prevention, it's not best, it's best not to drink alcohol. And there is convincing increased risk of alcohol in the upper aerodigestive tract malignancies, head and neck cancer and esophagus, certainly in liver cancer, uh, colorectal and also postmenopausal breast cancer. You can see the linear relationship between number of drinks of alcohol and the development of cancer. Alcohol probably also increases the risk of stomach cancer and premenopausal cancer, suggestive increased risk in lung and pancreas, and interestingly, probably decreases the risk of kidney cancer. We now believe that 6% of all cancer is related to alcohol intake, and the leading cause of death from alcohol in people over the age of 50 is cancer. So Michael Gregor from nutritionfacts.org says, if even light drinking can cause cancer, why don't doctors warn their patients about it? And in fact, a New England Journal of Medicine article last year suggested that a potential new warning be put on all bottles of alcohol. As someone who has studied the health effects of marijuana, it is amazing to me how mainstream we uh, allow alcohol to be so much more toxic than cannabis uh, doesn't make any sense at all. 
So it doesn't make any difference to adhere to these guidelines. <clears throat> Again, in French, in France, they looked at uh, 41,000 in their Nutrinet Sante cohort, and they looked at three validated guidelines. Uh, the uh, American Institute for Cancer Research, World Cancer Research Fund, being the only cancer-specific guidelines. A one-point increase in adherence to the guidelines led to a 12% decrease in overall cancer, 14% decrease in breast cancer, and a 12% decrease in prostate cancer. For colorectal cancer, uh, the decrease in risk was approached statistical significance, but didn't make it. So yes, it does make sense to use these guidelines to avoid the development of malignancy. Does it really make a difference, however, after cancer has been diagnosed? So Jeffrey Meyerhart in Boston published these results many years ago from a prospective a study of adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with colorectal cancer. And he uh, did a food frequency questionnaire and divided the group into a Western dietary pattern and a so-called more prudent dietary pattern. And this shows us the risk of recurrence and death in the lowest quartile of the Western dietary pattern as the reference group and the highest quartile, that is people who ate the most Western diet over here in group five. And you can see that they had a, a threefold uh, increased risk of death and a twofold increased risk of uh, a twofold, threefold increased risk of recurrence and a twofold increased risk of death compared to those who eat the lowest Western diet. And what do we mean? So this group had one serving of red meat a day, five servings of refined grains, and two sugary desserts. Whereas the lowest quintile had only uh, red meat twice a week, two servings of refined grain a day, and three desserts a week. So quite a big difference there. And recently, uh, just this year in JAMA Oncology, uh, patients in the Netherlands and Britain who were getting immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, were evaluated with regards to their adherence to a more Mediter Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean dietary pattern, which is high in whole grains, fish, nuts, fruits, and vegetables, uh, had an overall response rate that was 70% uh, better than those uh, who did not adhere uh, to the Mediterranean diet. And in fact, I just printed out uh, an article from JAMA Network Open looking at uh, breast cancer survivors and an aggregated lifestyle index score comprising data from four time points and seven lifestyles uh, factors, including physical activity, body mass index, fruit and vegetable consumption, red and processed meat intake, sugar sweetened beverage consumption, alcohol consumption, and smoking. And what they found was that the women who adhered most closely had a 37% reduction in disease recurrence and a 58% reduction in mortality. So yes, it does make a difference. And most of my patients, when we talk about nutrition, say, gee, Dr. Abrams, 
usually when I ask my oncologist what I should eat, they all say, eat whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. And I think that's wrong. The other question I get from patients quite frequently is, can I take this? And they bring me a shopping bag full of supplements. And their real question is, will this interfere with my cancer treatment, either by an interaction with the enzymes in the liver that break down uh, pharmaceuticals, or by an oxidant antioxidant effect? And here you can see me examining uh, patient supplements uh, with my cup of green tea uh, on the exam table. So the cytochrome P450 isoforms in the liver are responsible for breakdown of many of the different chemotherapeutic agents that we give our patients. And botanicals can either induce this enzyme system so that it'll break down these drugs faster and make them less effective, or they can inhibit the enzyme system so that they'll break down these drugs slower and they'll build up in the bloodstream and become more toxic. So the botanical that's been most studied is St. John's wort, which is used in mild depression. And St. John's wort should never be given to patients with cancer undergoing active treatment because it increases the uh, breakdown of these drugs so they become less effective. The antioxidant debate uh, comes this way. So oxygen in nature exists in two uh, molecules linked together. That's we breathe, that's how we live. But when those oxygen molecules separate, they create so-called free radicals, which knock into our DNA causing damage leading to aging or cancer. Antioxidants take those free radicals out of circulation so they don't do damage. Turns out most foods that are rich in antioxidants are plants. Animal products are not a great source of antioxidants. Uh, free radicals of oxygen are produced by radiation and some chemotherapy to kill cancer cells. So if patients are taking antioxidants while they're getting radiation or that chemotherapy, which produces those free radicals, they may in fact be negating the beneficial effects or the, the therapeutic effects of the radiation or the chemotherapy. So with regards to chemotherapy, the ones that are strongly oxidated, that is create free radicals to kill the cancer cells are the platinums, the alkylating agents, including cyclophosphamide, iphosphamide, and melphalan, and the anti-tumor antibiotics. Uh, and the antioxidants that our patients may take would be vitamins A, C, and E, selenium, melatonin, and acetylcysteine, coenzyme Q, glutathione, et cetera. So what do I do? <clears throat> I think it really depends on our goal of treatment. If the goal of chemo or radiation is to cure the patient or is given adjuvantly uh, to prevent the cancer from coming back, I say let's be err on the side of caution and delay antioxidants until they finish the radiation or the chemotherapy. Some of my colleagues, particularly my breast oncology colleagues, like to tell their patients to discontinue the antioxidants the day before, the day of, and the day after their chemotherapy. I don't think that takes into account the half-life of the chemo or the antioxidants. So I'm not a big fan of that. 
I see patients who tell me their radiation therapist said, no heavily pigmented fruits while you're getting radiation. Well, I think if it comes down to that blueberry versus that beam of radiation, I don't think the blueberry wins. So I, I think antioxidant rich foods are okay to eat and consume while you're getting radiation or chemotherapy that works by creating free radicals. If the goal is not necessarily to cure the patient, but just to decrease symptoms or palliate per, perhaps prolonged survival, if a patient wants to use antioxidants uh, to con, uh, give themselves more sense of control, then I'm not going to argue. And in fact, we as on oncologists use antioxidants to protect against radiation and chemotherapy, and we don't actually uh, worry about their interfering with the anti-tumor effects. So the one blood test that I draw on all patients that I see here at the Osher Center is a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. Low vitamin D puts people at greater risk for cancer, and people with cancer whose vitamin D levels are low don't do as well. Vitamin D comes from the sunshine, and we think about it as being important for bone health, which it certainly is, and many of my patients do have cancers that like to target the bones for spread, and I recommend having a healthy vitamin D level to make sure the bones are healthy. But I think vitamin D is also important in immunity. We talk about a flu season as if there's a bank of viruses waiting off the coast to come in in November. But we as a herd actually become vitamin D deficient and that decreases our immunity. So we also know that patients dying of COVID are often vitamin D deficient as well. So vitamin D is fat soluble and needs to be taken as a gel bead or a liquid and not as a white powder capsule or tablet complex to calcium for bone health as many patients take it. So I aim for a vitamin D level of 40 to 50 nanograms per ml in the 25 hydroxy D. I also like calcium, again, for bone health. And because I often tell patients not to consume dairy, which is our major dietary source of calcium. Calcium decreases the risk of colorectal cancer, may increase the risk of uh, prostate cancer or more aggressive prostate cancer in men. Calcium can also cause constipation. Magnesium does the opposite. So I tell patients to get a CalMag supplement that includes both calcium and magnesium for the balance. Both of those decrease the risk of colon cancer. And if a CalMag supplement has a little zinc in it, that's also good too for the immune system as well as for the prostate. As I mentioned, omega-3 fatty acids are very out of balance in our diet. So to bring back some balance and decrease inflammation, I often recommend an omega-3 supplement. Uh, patients uh, should refrigerate their omega-3 fatty acids and eat food on top of it, and that decreases fishy burps. Mushrooms, I am a big fan of medicinal mushrooms. Uh, the cell wall of the mushroom resembles the cell wall of a bacterium. So when you ingest medicinal mushrooms, your body thinks you're being invaded by a bacterium and mounts a nonspecific immune response, hopefully to fight off the bacterium. But in addition, we like to think that it may also be enlisted in the fight against the cancer. So the mushroom that's been studied the most for its anti-cancer activity is turkey tail. Uh, 
turkey tail is not an edible mushroom. Uh, we in the United States tend to be a bit fungophobic, uh, fearful of mushrooms that if you consume them, you're going to have a psychedelic experience or wipe out your liver and die. In Asia, they're much more fungophilic. And most of the studies showing the benefit of medicinal mushrooms in conjunction with radiation and chemotherapy have been done in Japan and China. Uh, so I'm a big fan of medicinal mushrooms uh, for many different aspects of uh, treating uh, cancer. And again, they are used in conjunction with radiation and chemo uh, in Asia. Turmeric, I already mentioned. Uh, the first I ever heard about turmeric was at our conventional American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. Uh, investigators at Ohio State have a mouse model of colon cancer where the mice are genetically programmed to develop colon cancer. And if they fed them a turmeric-enriched diet, they didn't develop colon cancer. And that's because turmeric is not well absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract. So it can get all the way down to the distal GI tract, i.e. the colon, where it can do some local chemo protection. So turmeric is good. Probiotic, I consider chemo to be a pretty potent antibiotic. So that's why I recommend that patients consider taking a probiotic uh, if they've had cytotoxic chemotherapy. Let me just go back to mushrooms for one second because two groups of patients that I don't recommend medicinal mushrooms to are patients with lymphoproliferative malignancies, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and multiple myeloma, basically because I consider those to be uh, malignancies of the immune system that's already too turned on, and I don't want to turn it on further with the mushrooms. I also don't recommend medicinal mushrooms to patients receiving our new immunotherapies. Again, because I think the potential benefit of the immunotherapy is so great, I don't want the mushrooms immune enhancement to interfere with it. These are two basically Donald Gestalt phobic uh, there is no evidence in the medical literature. Uh, this is evidence-informed as opposed to evidence-based, or actually it's not even evidence-informed. It's just my gut feeling that I wouldn't recommend that. The other uh, supplement that I frequently recommend is cannabis. I really blame cannabis for getting me into the integrative field. In 1992, when I was an AIDS investigator, somebody challenged me to study cannabis as a treatment for the AIDS wasting syndrome. And I said, okay, I can do that. I went to college in the 60s. So that began my five-year fight with the government to get cannabis to do research. And during that time, I developed a strong appreciation of the power of plants as medicine. And that's what uh, took me to my integrative medicine fellowship at the Andrew Weil Center. So cannabis is widely used by cancer patients this is a study published in uh, 2021. Uh, 612 breast cancer patients responded to a survey about their cannabis use. So it, it is probably a little biased as far as who responded. 42% said that they use cannabis for medicinal purpose, but only 23% use it strictly medical. So 20% also use it recreationally, uh, which is probably better than alcohol. Uh, three quarters reported that it was extremely or very helpful at relieving their symptoms. And the symptoms that were relieved were pain, insomnia, anxiety, stress, and nausea and vomiting. 
Unfortunately, 50% also said that they're using cannabis to help treat the cancer itself, uh, something which I don't think uh, really ever happens. So let's do a little cannabis uh, basics. Uh, cannabis is a very versatile botanical that's been used for millennia. It was only removed from the US pharmacopoeia in 1942 uh, due to the Marijuana Tax Act. And it was scheduled as a Schedule One substance in 1970, meaning that it has no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, both of which in my mind are incorrect. Uh, efforts to reschedule cannabis have all failed. The plant itself, the botanical, contains over 400 chemicals, including 120 to 150 known as cannabinoids, 21 carbon terpenophenolic uh, compounds. <clears throat> uh, in addition to the cannabinoids, the plant contains the terpenoids, which give each strain its characteristic odor, as well as flavonoids. And in other plants, uh, terpenoids and flavonoids, just like in cannabis, have potential medicinal benefit. With regards to the cannabinoids, delta-9 THC, or delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, is the most psychoactive component. Cannabidiol, or CBD, has jumped to the top of the most favored cannabinoid list because it's felt to be not psychoactive. Patients, however, report that it's useful for anxiety and sleep, so it is psychoactive, but it doesn't get you high. And we live in a euphoriophobic society. We, we don't like being high. And so we've glommed onto CBD, which is quite different from THC in the way that it acts. In fact, CBD in the plant may be there to modulate the activity of the THC. Cannabinol or CBN is a breakdown product of old THC. So anybody who went to college in the 60s and had a stash of marijuana that went old know that if they smoked it, they got sleepy. And that's because it was CBN dominant. I think tetrahydrocannabivirine or THCV is an interesting cannabinoid because it seems to decrease appetite for food, for alcohol, and perhaps for opiates. So if we're going to pharmaceuticalize these cannabinoids individually, THCV is one that I'd like to see a little bit more work done on. So our bodies have cannabinoid receptors, cannabinoid receptor one and two, or CB1 and two. These are seven transmembrane domain G protein coupled receptors, like most of the important receptors in the body. The CB1 receptor is the most densely populated seven transmembrane domain G protein coupled receptor in the human brain. And we don't learn about that in medical school. That shows you the extent of reefer madness. The CB2 receptor was initially identified in cells of the immune system. So why do we and all animals down through sea squirts have these receptors? You've never seen a monkey smoking a joint. Well, it's because we make our own endogenous cannabinoids, like our own endogenous opioids, the endorphins, we make endocannabinoids. So the endocannabinoids also complex with these receptors. And interestingly, THC complexes with the cannabinoid receptor, CBD actually does not. So I was one of the 16 members of the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine 
committee in 2016 that reviewed 10,000 articles in the medical literature and published the book, The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids in January of 2017. And in that book, there's one chapter on therapeutics and 13 chapters on potential harm. Well, why is that? The only legal source of cannabis for research in the country is NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And NIDA has a congressional mandate that they should only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So if you wanna study the potential therapeutic effects of the botanical cannabis, you must, in the old days, you had to use NIDA cannabis, but they found it difficult to support such a study financially. Nowadays, there are other certified growers so that you don't necessarily have to get cannabis for research from NIDA. Anyway, NIDA funds $150 million worth of research looking at the harmful effects of cannabis, hence 12 chapters on harm and only one on benefit. And in that chapter on therapeutic highlights, we conclude that in adults with chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, oral cannabinoids are effective antiemetics. And in adults with chronic pain, patients treated with cannabis or cannabinoids are more likely to experience a clinically significant reduction in their pain. So where does it come from that cannabis may have some effect against cancer itself? A study published in 1975 in the Journal of the National, Institute, National Cancer Institute by investigators at Virginia Commonwealth University reported that Delta-9 THC, Delta-8 THC, and cannabinol all inhibited Lewis lung adenocarcinoma cell growth in vitro and in mice. Interestingly, CBD did not. CBD led to increased tumor growth. Since that time, there's been an increasing body of preclinical evidence, that is, in the test tube and in animals, suggesting that cannabinoids may have an anti-cancer activity. In addition, cannabis has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects, and these are things that I look for in patients uh, with cancer. So there is a possibility of a direct anti-tumor activity acting by way of the cannabinoid receptor inducing programmed cell death and also impairing blood vessel uh, delivery to the tumor sites. Multiple different tumor cell lines are inhibited by cannabis or cannabinoids in the test tube. And if you take mice that don't have an immune system and transplant human tumors, all of these listed, lung, breast, colorectal, pancreas, carcinomas, skin cancer, melanoma, lymphoma, thyroid, and brain tumors, all respond to uh, cannabinoids. My friend and colleague Manuel Guzman at Complutense University in Madrid, his lab has done much of the work on the anti-cancer activity of cannabinoids. Their lab studies metabolism, the effects of cannabis on metabolism. And the most metabolically active cells in the body are the brain. So his team, grew up brain cells and they added cannabinoids to see what would happen. They said, maybe we can do our work faster if we grew up a brain tumor. So they grew up a rat brain tumor and they added cannabinoids and everything died. And they said, oh, we must've done something wrong. So they did it again and everything died. So they said, maybe it's a bad batch of cannabinoids. They went back to normal brain and everything lived. 
So since that time, they've done a lot of elegant research showing that the cannabinoids complex with the cannabinoid receptors and in, induce apoptosis or programmed cell death. In addition, they've shown that the cannabinoids block vascular endothelial growth factor, which allows for new blood vessel formation to supply the tumor. And in addition, they've shown that the cannabinoids inhibit the enzyme called matrix metalloproteinase 2, which allows cancer cells to become invasive and metastasize. All this in the test tube, nothing, however, has been shown in humans. We concluded in the 2017 pub publication that there was no or insufficient evidence that cannabis has any activity against human cancers because all of the studies have been done mainly in the test tube. That was back in 2017. Now there is one report in the medical literature of a study of nabiximols, which is a whole plant extract of cannabis that's modulated to have a THC to CBD ratio of one to one. This is a pharmaceutical that's licensed and approved in the United Kingdom, Canada, the European Union, Australia, and New Zealand because of its benefits in patients with spasticity related to multiple sclerosis. It has not yet been approved in the United States for anything because clinical trials of it have not shown benefit in placebo-controlled studies. A study was done in patients with recurrent brain tumor, glioblastoma, the most aggressive brain tumor. And this was a very small study, 12 patients with recurrent glioblastoma used this under the tongue spray of nabiximols and nine patients used a placebo spray under the tongue. Uh, two thirds of both groups recurred by six months of follow-up. So their cancers came back. However, despite the fact that there was no apparent evident benefit on progression-free survival, 83% of the group receiving the nabiximols was alive at one year compared to only 44% of those getting placebo. And this was statistically significant, although such a small study cannot really make any definitive statements about survival. So speaking about smoking, uh, doesn't that cause cancer? Why would people consider smoking cannabis to be a healthy uh, intervention? Well, we actually found moderate evidence of no statistical association between cannabis smoking and the incidence of lung or head and neck cancer, both cancers which are increased in those who use tobacco. There was limited evidence of a statistical association between cannabis smoking and testicular tumors. Now, when we were meeting in Washington uh, to uh, uh, review the data to write these recommendations, we had a gentleman from the National Driving and Safety uh, Corporation come and speak to us about whether there was an increased uh, motor vehicle accidents in states where cannabis had been legalized. And he said there is, but if you adjust uh, for uh, a confounder, uh, the increase disappears. He says, who smokes cannabis? Young men. Who gets into automobile accidents? Young men. 
Similarly, who smokes cannabis? Young men. Who gets testicular tumors? Young men. So this statistical association is not causative, i.e. it's similar to the finding that there are increased drowning deaths in months where ice cream is overconsumed. True, true, and unrelated. In fact, a recent study from last year looking at 151,000 people for an association between cannabis use and urologic cancers uh, in Britain found that previous use of cannabis was a significant protective factor for kidney cancer, decreasing the risk 40%, bladder cancer 35%, and prostate cancer 18%. There was no significant association between cannabis use and testicular cancer, although there was uh, an increased hazard ratio, uh, it was not statistically significant. So what about oncologists and their concerns about uh, use of cannabis in cancer patients? One of the old concerns is the development of a severe fungal infection caused by aspergillus. However, a study in AIDS patients, I think, really demonstrated that cannabis use was not associated with an increased risk of pulmonary aspergillosis. This was a case control study of 19 patients with HIV who had this fungus in washings from their lungs. And the presence of the fungus was mainly associated with very low white blood cell count, severe immune deficiency, use of steroids, and prior pneumocystis infection. Cannabis use was not associated with the presence of aspergillosis. Oncologists may be concerned about interactions between pharmaceuticals and the botanical itself. Uh, a few studies have been done demonstrating no significant pharmacokinetic interaction study. However, I do worry about my patients who are using highly concentrated oils of CBD particularly and or THC because of their impact in that enzyme system in the liver that breaks down pharmaceuticals. There is a body of evidence in the literature now suggesting that the effect of cannabis on immunotherapy may be negative. The first study was a retrospective study in Israel of patients receiving immunotherapy and those using a cannabis, suggesting that there was a decreased response rate of the tumor, but no significant uh, effect of overall survival. A subsequent study did show quite a dramatic impact on survival. In this, again, Israeli retrospective study, uh, patients who use cannabis had a median of 3.4 months before their tumor recurred compared to 13 months in the patients not using cannabis. But even more shocking, they had a median overall survival of six months compared to two years longer in patients not using cannabis. Well, how can that be? How can cannabis shorten survival by two years? Well, when I looked at the, uh, the study itself, I found an important difference that was statistically significant, that those patients who didn't use cannabis were much more likely to be getting uh, immunotherapy as a first-line treatment compared to those using cannabis who are more likely to be getting it later down the road. So that might explain the difference in survival. Recently, a study was published, however, 
the use of medical cannabis concomitantly with immune checkpoint inhibitors in non-small cell lung cancer, a sigh of relief. They looked at 201 patients treated with first-line pembrolizumab monotherapy, uh, one of the immunotherapies that we use. And uh, patients were using uh, cannabis mostly for pain. Time to tumor progression was six months in the cannabis naive group and 5.6 months in those who use cannabis, which was not statistically significant. However, overall survival was again much longer, twice as long in the cannabis naive group compared to those who use cannabis, although this did not meet a p-value of 0.05 for statistical significance, but it is a little worrisome. Now, in this group, uh, those <clears throat> using cannabis were more likely to have both uh, liver metastases and brain metastases, which again, might explain the difference in survival. So what about stress? I tell my patients, I don't think stress in and of itself can cause cancer, but stress is not good for cancer. Again, stress is adrenaline or epinephrine, which is lymphocytotoxic, and stress is cortisol, which is an immune suppressant. They looked at women with ovarian cancer and found that women who lacked social support and had higher levels of distress, their tumors had higher levels of vascular endothelial growth factor. That was the first association between a psychological factor and a cytokine involved in tumor uh, blood vessel formation. Similarly, a study in patients with head and neck squamous cell carcinoma found that those who had poor psychological functioning, that is depressive symptoms, stress, anxiety, or decreased social support, also were significantly associated with greater expression of vascular endothelial growth factor particularly in patients who lacked uh, evidence of uh, human papillomavirus-associated malignancies. And those patients with higher vascular endothelial growth factor were two and a half more times likely to die. So maybe stress does have something to do with outcome. So I encourage patients to adopt ways to decrease stress. Patients can join a support group, although I have many patients, particularly young patients with cancer, who don't find support groups are useful for reducing stress, but find, in fact, that they may increase stress. Journaling, writing down your feelings, is a way to decrease stress sometimes. Disclosure, sharing your diagnosis with other people. I did have a dear friend who died ultimately of lung cancer that she had for 10 years who didn't tell many people. And I said, why are you not sharing this? You're depriving yourself of a support group amongst your friends. She said, Donald, I don't want people to treat me differently. Guided imagery and hypnosis, breath work, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction is a very popular eight-week program uh, that people learn how to cope with their thoughts, how to meditate and Yoga is something because you're moving with your breath and you're relaxing your mind, not thinking about your daily stressors is something that I highly recommend uh, to patients. 
Time Magazine recently had an article, uh, Can Complementary Therapies Ease Cancer Treatment Symptoms? What the Science Says. And the, and the woman in the article uh, was skeptical about traditional Chinese medicine, but she went for acupuncture and she remarked that it was quite beneficial. Actually, the National Institutes of Health had a consensus conference in 1997 that concluded that acupuncture was useful for treating nausea and vomiting related to chemotherapy. Since that time, it's been studied for many cancer-related symptoms, including pain, especially from neuropathy, anxiety, depression, dry mouth in patients with head and neck cancer getting radiation therapy. It's been shown to be useful in hot flashes and in uh, women who have musculoskeletal symptoms from aromatase inhibitors uh, for uh, treatment of uh, hormone uh, receptor positive breast cancer. Again, it's been found to be equal uh, to the pharmaceutical and relief of hot flashes in women, but is also uh, useful in relief of hot flashes in men uh, with prostate cancer undergoing androgen deprivation, deprivation therapy. It's effective for cancer-related fatigue, and it can not only uh, treat, but hopefully deprent, de decrease or prevent dry mouth uh, from patients getting uh, radiation for head and neck cancer. And many of my colleagues are concerned about uh, their patients with low blood counts getting either infected or bleeding uh, if they get needled uh, during their treatment. However, uh, studies have shown that in fact, acupuncture is safe. <clears throat> Let me just go back to acupuncture for a second. A recent meta-analysis from China has suggested that uh, patients who get acupuncture while they're getting chemotherapy have less damage to their liver, their kidneys, and their bone marrows. And it's my experience that for my patients who are getting active cancer treatment, those who get acupuncture tolerate their treatment much better than those who don't. So recently an article was published uh, in the Journal of Oncology suggesting that uh, those uh, patients who were treated at centers where integrative medicine interventions were offered uh, did better. So the institutions were scored on their efforts to educate, support, and provide these 12 integrative medicine interventions, nutrition, exercise, support groups, spiritual care, psycho-oncology, massage, meditation, yoga, acupuncture, music or art, Reiki, Tai Chi, or Qigong. They invited 2,430 oncologists to participate. And unfortunately, the participation rate was really quite poor. And the analysis included 173 patients from these oncologists, so less than two per oncologist. So already this is suspect and how it got published is a mystery to me. And what they found was breast cancer survivorship was related to institutional involvement with integrative cancer care. So those institutions who had the lowest integrative oncology score, their breast cancer survival rate was 89% compared to 95% in those who have the highest, which you can see that this is not a dose response here and the number of people is so incredibly low that it's very difficult 
to make uh, any conclusion. But it's also very difficult to do the randomized placebo-controlled trial because you can't randomize people to integrative cancer care versus not. And there is no placebo for integrative cancer care. So I think the issue is we as oncologists need to realize that we need to work with the whole person and that that person is made up of many, many different levels and layers. And we should always ask what matters and explore a patient's personal determinants of healing. For example, when I see a patient, after I ask them if they were raised with any religious beliefs and if they consider themselves spiritual, I ask them three closing questions. What brings you joy? What are your hopes? And where does your strength come from? And one uh, gentleman, when I was asking his wife these questions, said, what is she being interviewed for Miss America? But I saw a woman at a conference a few years after her husband died, and she came up to me and she said, you know, when we came to see you, we knew where he was on his trajectory. But when you asked him those three questions, he realized for the first time that he still had joy, hope, and strength. And that made a big difference in the rest of his life. So thank you. So I do ask those three closing questions. And in the end, I think that's another way that it, it helps build the relationship between me and the patient, because certainly I get to know that person a little better. I'm always amazed by how quick on their feet my patients can answer these somewhat unexpected questions from their oncologist. So with that, I'll remind us all that the role of the physician is to cure sometimes, heal often, and support always. And I will close this presentation. And thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, doctor, for that very informative presentation. So um, we're gonna begin our Q&A session shortly, but before we do, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to um, let everybody know how to contact you and um, where they could find your books. So Integrative Oncology, I think, is best obtained uh, uh, from Amazon or from Oxford University Press. Uh, it is the second edition, which by now is getting to be a little old, but I actually retired from uh, much of what I do uh, uh, three years ago, and I'm not in a position or desiring to uh, uh, update that edition. So if somebody else does it, that'll be fine. Uh, there is a first edition and a second edition. It's translated into many, many different Asian languages, uh, but unfortunately not into Spanish or French or any other uh, non-Asian languages. Uh, I don't want to be contacted. I retired. Uh, I still work two mornings a week. And my next new patient appointment is in January 2024. So I, uh, I'm i not giving out my contact information, if that's fair. Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I really meant more like social media type of stuff so they could follow I you. Do, I don't do social media. <laughs> enough, enough, enough said. And congratulations <laughs> on the retirement. I'm sure you're uh, enjoying some peace. So, well, thank you for sharing that information. And I will now begin our Q&A session. 
we'll be asking questions of you, the the, uh, the doctor, and and uh, if the audience has questions, we'll open it up to them to ask questions as well. We first just want to explain to everyone how this works. We don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand. If you're not sure how to do this, what you need to do is click on the reactions button, second from the left in the bottom of the Zoom window, then click on the raise hand function in the menu that pops up. We will then take questions in the order in which they are received. When it is your turn, I will unmute you, prompt you to state your name, where you're from, and ask your question. We ask that everyone keep their questions brief and on topic. We will then mute you. In order to give everyone a chance to get a, the opportunity to ask a question, uh, we won't be taking follow-up questions. However, if you do have a follow-up question or another question, you can always get back online by raising your hand again. And if we have time, we will try to call on you. So. I just want to say that I'm not doing uh, personal uh, consultations here, so I'm not answering questions about individuals' health. Sure, sure. All right. So, well, that's a that's a good note to everybody, and we try to do that in general. But yes, yeah, so this is not for personal consultation. So, uh, all questions should be more uh, broad and you know on the topic, not on you personally. So, with that, and and obviously, if someone does ask a question like that you know, you can give them the same answer and we can just move on from there. So our first person is Cheryl. Cheryl, please state your name, where you're from and ask your question. My name is Cheryl and I'm from California. Hi, Dr. Abrams, and thank you so much for your work. My question is about C-reactive protein. Does everyone with cancer of any kind have high C-reactive protein? And conversely, if someone has a near zero score, on a high sensitivity CRP test, can that person feel confident that they don't have cancer of any kind developing? That's a very good question to, and one to which I don't know the answer. Uh, C-reactive protein is something that I think has been more studied and, and uh, validated in cardiac disease as opposed to cancer. So I don't know how often uh, people draw C-reactive proteins in patients with cancer. I know that at the beginning of my practice, excuse me, I said that the only blood test that I do order is 25-hydroxy uh, vitamin D. There was a time when I first started my integrative oncology practice where I did want to order uh, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein as well as hemoglobin A1C to see how my patients were managing their blood sugars uh, in the three months prior to the visit. But now with the electronic medical record, I have to associate ordering C-reactive protein or hemoglobin A1C with a specific diagnosis so that the test could be funded by the insurer and so that the patient doesn't have to pay. So to that end, I've stopped ordering C-reactive protein and hemoglobin A1C because insurance won't pay for it. Uh, unless people have diabetes or heart disease. So I, I think uh, you should Google uh, C-reactive protein and cancer and see if there are any articles published uh, on that. I personally would suspect that I wouldn't count out the possibility of having cancer with a normal C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein measures inflammation. And you would think, like from what I said, that inflammation is going to be associated with cancer, but 
Maybe not with all cancers. So, you know, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. Let's see if there's anything in the medical literature. Great. Thank you for that answer, doctor. The next question is coming from Stephen, although I don't see a way to unmute you, Stephen. I don't know if you have your microphone on, so you may want to try to fix that. Uh, the next question is going to come from Bin Wu. Bin Wu, please state your name, where you're from, and ask your question. Hello. Um, thank you for your le um, great lecture. So um, uh, I'm from Maryland. And my question is, um, you said uh, we can do the meditation. So usually when we do meditation, how long is better to get the benefit? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it's uh, I think it's dependent on the person. I have some people that do 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes at night. Some people do 20 minutes. Some people do uh, 30 minutes. I, th I think that probably that's been studied, you know, how long you have to do to get your brain waves to sort of calm down and slow down. Uh, Mind-body interventions are not my specific area of uh, interest. I'm more interested in things that we take by mouth, uh, supplements and food. Uh, so I don't know the answer to if they've studied exactly how long you need to meditate to get the maximum benefit. I would say <clears throat> I would experiment and uh, see what you think. Do 10, 20 or 30 minutes and see where you pan out getting the most benefit with the least amount of stress by thinking I should be doing something else. Thank you, doctor. I'm going to ask a question now. You had mentioned early on in your presentation about how you viewed a lot of the um, the treatments in integrative medicine as complementary as opposed to alternative. There, are, And then you also mentioned later on about how some people use marijuana as an alternative treatment, which causes some problems for them. What alternative treatments, not in, you know, not complementary to, you know, conventional treatments um, are dangerous for people to avoid that you've seen people try and that should, that they should be mindful of avoiding? Well, I think any alternative to conventional cancer therapy puts people at risk for having a worse outcome. Uh, a personal friend uh, who has uh, rectal cancer, who's choosing not to treat it conventionally, even though I told her, it's an investment you make of about a year. It takes chemo, chemo and radiation, surgery, maybe more chemo, but then you're free of rectal cancer, but she doesn't want to do that. And she's doing every alternative in the book and continuing to bleed from her rectal mass. And it's, it's just so, so sad for me to, to watch her pursue these, you know, traveling all over to meet with gurus and shamans and people that are not helping her, you know, this is a completely curable cancer. Uh, so people that are going to do intravenous vitamin C therapy, for example, something that my naturopathic friends really uh, rely on is something, one of the mainstays of their interventions for cancer patients. I've never seen it cure cancer and I've never seen it really have a benefit. I think most of my naturopathic colleagues are using it in conjunction with conventional uh, therapy for improving quality of life. I'm not a big fan of mistletoe. <clears throat> I see a lot of patients who are importing mistletoe preparations from Germany, where it's widely used in anthroposophic medicine as, as something. I don't know. I, 
in, in the beginning of my career as an AIDS doctor, I worked with an anthroposophic uh, physician from Germany who used mistletoe on all the AIDS patients and they all died. And similarly, AIDS patients were getting intravenous vitamin C and they all died. So that I think has sort of, you know, influence my feeling that these are not useful interventions for cancer patients either. Hyperthermia, ozone, rectal ozone. I mean, the number of crazy things that people do uh, is enormous. And uh, I, in my 18 years sitting here uh, talking to patients about what they're doing and, you know, those are things that I don't think work and that, uh, you know, those trips that people take to Mexico to spend you know, thousands and thousands of dollars getting, you know, juice fasts or rectal coffee enemas, you know, that's, yeah, that doesn't cure cancer. I mean, okay. Good Thank question. You. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Um, our next question is going to Jay. Jay, please state your name, where you're from, and state your question. He's on mute now. Uh, no, I, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Jay, go ahead yeah. and state your question. Yeah. Hello, I'm Jay from um, the UK. Um, I was just wondering, you know, they say uh, reduce your carbs if you've got cancer and uh, that that should starve the cancer. I also heard glutamine is another compound that feeds cancer. What do you use on that? What are my views on glutamine? Glutamine and uh, carbohydrates feeding cancer. Yeah, so let's start with glutamine, which is, uh, you know, does become glucose. And so that, uh, you know, uh, is something that patients often use to protect them from the side effects of some chemotherapy, particularly peripheral neuropathy or gastrointestinal effects. And I think if people are going to use glutamine as a supplement while they're being treated for cancer, that uh, they should stop it when they're done with their treatment because it does become uh, sugar and sugar is the number one no. Carbohydrates. Uh, so <clears throat> the Institute of Medicine suggests that 60% of our uh, calories should come from carbohydrates, 20% uh, from protein, and 20% uh, from fat. And I agree with that. Fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, those are all carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are good for you. Everything becomes sugar. That's how we energize and fuel ourselves. It's a question of being sugar attached to fiber uh, as opposed to as a juice and the rate at which the sugar uh, is metabolized, the so-called glycemic index. So yeah, so carbohydrates are essential part of the diet, but they should be uh, complex carbohydrates and not simple carbohydrates uh, like white flour, white sugar, White rice, if you like white rice, jasmine and basmati are best. Millet and quinoa are good grains. Uh, bread should be whole grain and not whole wheat. Whole wheat is just heavily processed unbleached white flour. So I believe carbohydrates are essential to the diet. Glutamine should be used as a supplement cautiously for patients uh, who are looking to protect themselves from neuropathy. Uh, actually, an Israeli study suggested that uh, Cannabis was useful in protecting patients from developing peripheral neuropathy from oxaliplatinum-based uh, uh, chemotherapy regimens, and that those patients 
using cannabis before they got their oxalic platinum were able to uh, have more of the chemotherapy uh, infused and less uh, dose reductions or schedule prolongations uh, when they use uh, cannabis while getting uh, chemotherapy that might damage their nerves. So one of our speakers, Brian Clement from Hippocrates, uh, says that fruit feeds yeast, mold, fungus, and cancer. It, do you agree with with that statement? No, nope. uh, believes that it should be avoided. So no, okay. No. Yeah, I think uh, the we should have uh, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables each day. More vegetables than fruits. Excellent. Thank you. Personally, I eat my whole apple every day, uh, except the stem. I don't believe much in homeopathy, but I don't believe ancient men threw out the apple core, their pear core. Apple seeds are cyanide, which is death. And in homeopathy, you take a little bit every day of what you're trying to avoid. And apparently the queen mum ate her whole apple every day and lived to be 103. And I think the last queen probably did it too. She looked pretty good for 96. I don't know about the new king though, if he's eating his whole apple. Similarly, if you can find a grape, that has a seed in it, that bitterness in the grape seed, that's the grape trying to protect itself from a predator. And we now know that grape seed is good for breast, colon, and prostate cancer. So if you're eating grapes red with skin and seed, and if you drink alcohol, which I don't recommend, red wine would be the best beverage. So I eat my whole apple every day after lunch, and I eat blueberries at night after dinner. So that's the fruit that I eat, but I eat like seven servings of vegetables uh, during the course of a day. So, yeah, I don't think fruit is mold and causes cancer. No evidence of that. Fruit decreases the risk of most cancers. Thank you. So you mentioned in your presentation that 40% of cancers are weight-related. Are there specific cancers that are more correlated with weight than others? Yeah, again, I gave those charts. Uh, so hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, certainly endometrial cancer, uh, myeloma, esophageal, gastric, colon, uh, you know, all of those cancers along the GI tract. And then, as I mentioned, 25% of uh, kidney cancer is related to overweight or obesity. So, uh, you know, the, the National Cancer Institute had a whole uh, webinar on how that, how that could be, how overweight or obesity impacts kidney cancer. But, you know, I think this is an area of, of uh, ongoing research. And, you know, some of them, as I mentioned, uh, are because fat uh, produces hormones and hormones drive hormone receptor positive breast cancer as well as endometrial cancer. But again, I think it's the insulin, insulin growth factor that obese people become insulin resistant Insulin is like growth factor, promote inflammation, and the growth factor is a growth factor for cancer cells as well. Thank you. You mentioned drinking green tea. Um, you know, you said white and green was good. I'm, I'm assuming the implication is that brown is not particularly good for, uh, for cancer. You also mentioned soft drinks were bad for, for cancer, both, you know, because of the sugar content when they're, and when that sweetener is replaced with something artificial, such as aspartame. What other drinks should we be drinking and what other drinks should we be avoiding with regard to cancer? Yeah, so again, I drink my four cups of green tea. You said brown tea, so I think uh, 
black, black tea. I'm sorry, black tea. Yes, correct. Yeah. So I think, you know, they're not bad, but they don't have the polyphenol, the EGCG that green tea has, uh, which is second only to cruciferous vegetables in the potency of its cancer risk reducing. People always say, what about coffee? So coffee in the, in the old days, they thought coffee increased the risk of pancreatic cancer. Now they say, if you drink four cups of coffee a day, decreases your risk of colon cancer. Well, I would imagine that's because your colon is empty or mine would be if I drank four cups of coffee a day. Uh, and people tend to put two things in coffee, which I'm not in favor of, i.e. milk and sugar. So uh, coffee, I think, is good for the brain and the heart. Uh, so if you don't put in milk and sugar, I think coffee, if you want it as a, another beverage to consume, is probably okay. My other beverage is sparkling mineral water. And I do a German sparkling mineral water because it provides me with 10% of my daily calcium requirement. And as I mentioned, I don't do dairy. So it's good to have a source of calcium. So my personal beverages are green tea uh, and uh, sparkling mineral water. Uh, some people think sparkling is not good, that it's whatever, but you gotta, you gotta eat something. And I've gotten to this age doing what I'm doing. So I'm happy to be here. All right. Excellent. So what about, now you mentioned something about iron and, and specifically heme iron. What about a plant-based iron sources? How is that with regard to cancer? Uh, plant-based iron is like in what, spinach? Where's, where does it, iron? It's in, yeah, actually plant-based people tend to have more iron in their diet than, than. Yeah. Non- so I think, I think it's heme, heme iron, which is Correct. I think even in animals. So I think uh, plant-based iron is probably fine. Stephen Friedman has his hand up again and he's muted. So maybe he can ask his question. Sure, let's give it a shot. <clears throat> Unmute, yeah. There you go. Um, nope. Oh yeah, I know for some reason, I, I keep on having this, there we go. Stephen, please state your name, where you're from and ask your question. All right. We tried. Struggle. All right. I'm going to bring your hand down, Stephen. If you fix your audio issue, you can raise your hand again and we will uh, we'll try to call on you. So we do have another question from Ruth Lynn. Ruth, please state your name and where you're from and ask your question. I don't know if we're having some sort of issue here. Oh, hold on. Is that, that's there we go. We'll try again, Ruth. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. Sorry, I came in really late just now and I'm not sure what what the subject is but i do have a question um about uh, if somebody is high in oxalates and they have to have low oxalate foods um you know it 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 means that there are a lot of foods that um uh are, are not really um good for me to have um like spinach and beets and a whole load of other things um, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, if you know anything about high oxalates, I'm not, I, I haven't got a problem with kidney stones, but, um, I did get tested a few years ago. Maybe it's different now in the United States and the lab sent back this information about how I was high in oxalates. And so that was uh, the beginning of, of learning about this. And so many doctors and, 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 and lots of other people don't, don't know anything about this. Including but- me, including me. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that, Ruth. <laughs> All right. So um, does, Cooking with oil contribute to increasing cancer. 
You know, I have friends who won't eat out because they're, you know, afraid of oil. I, I think if you're using oil, as I mentioned, uh, grape seed or rice bran oil are good oils. We use olive oil. Uh, olive oil is good. It's uh, omega-9. And uh, I think it's the reason that we see uh, the benefits of the Mediterranean diet because of the use of olive oil. Uh, you know, you got to eat something for high high heat. We at home, we use peanut oil. It may not have the fabulous uh, omega profile of some of the other oils, but uh, that's what we use. Uh, uh, people I talk about uh, coconut oil. Uh, that to me gives everything a taste of Thai food, which I don't mind, but I don't want it all the time. Plus, it is a saturated fat because it's solid at room temperature. So uh, one needs to be cautious of that. Even though it's a plant-based saturated fat, it is a saturated fat. Okay. So in your overall analysis, and I think I, I, I'm, I have an idea of what you're going to say, does a whole food plant-based diet reduce cancer? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So my recommendations are organic plant-based, antioxidant-rich, anti-inflammatory, real, and whole foods. So starting back to front, I say whole foods, not to support Jeff Bezos, who certainly doesn't need my support, but because I see a lot of people say, I have cancer, I'm gonna juice everything, or I have cancer, I'm gonna sprinkle broccoli powder in a smoothie. I think it's better to eat the whole foods that gives you the fiber and not as much sugar. I say real foods because I read my friend and colleague, Robert Lustig's book, Metabolical. And Robert is our pediatric endocrinologist here at UCSF who fights the war on childhood obesity and sugar. And in Metabolical, he claims that the reason our health as a nation has deteriorated over the past 50 years is because of our increased consumption of processed and ultra processed foods. So I say, eat something that you recognize as a food. Inflammation we talked about when you cut yourself, it gets red, hot, tender, and swollen. That's inflammation, part of normal healing. But when that goes on inside of us without provocation, it leads to degenerative diseases of aging. So anti-inflammatory foods are important. And I mentioned oxygen, two molecules linked together. When they separate, they create free radicals, which knock into our DNA causing damage leading to aging or cancer. Antioxidants take those free radicals out of circulation so they don't do damage. Now, as I mentioned, it turns out most foods that are rich in antioxidants are plants. Animal products are not a great source of antioxidants. That's why I say the diet should be plant-based, but I don't think we need to be vegetarian or vegan or raw, but we should have five to nine servings or three and a half cups of fruits and vegetables each day more vegetables than fruits. And as much as possible, they should all be organic. And that's not just to avoid herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers, but it's because a plant that's grown outdoors organically needs to fight to protect itself from other plants, birds and insects, and the sunshine. And the only way a plant knows how to protect itself is by making chemical. Turns out those chemicals called phytoalexins that the plant makes are the ones that benefit us. So if we're going to let food be our medicine and medicine be our food, organic is more potent than conventional. Thank you very much. I'm going to call on David. David, please state your name, where you're from, and ask your question. Hi, I'm David from California. Um, and uh, 
My question is follow up to to what we've been talking about. What's your opinion, uh, doctor, about um, uh, roasted nuts? Do you think that they are um, uh, causing cancer, or would you uh, prefer um, uh, raw nuts? Uh, I don't think there's a difference between roasted and raw nuts. I don't think roasted nuts cause cancer. I certainly hope not, because most of the nuts I eat are roasted. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Thank you. So uh, we're going to try Stephen one more time. He raised his hand again. So let's see here. One second. Stephen, please. Okay. There you go. go ahead. Steve from New York. Trying again. Hypothetically, an ex-smoker, whole food plant-based, what preventative measures can we take? Uh, smoked since age of 12, quit around 35. Doing all of the things that you just described. Yeah, that's what I would but, say. <laughs> but really anxious about, you know, the, the prospect of developing um, lung cancer later in life. So anxious equals anxiety equals stress. So decrease your anxiety, live your life. You know, do the things I mentioned. You can Google Osher Abrams uh, or Abrams Osher. And on my website uh, at the Osher Center, I have uh, a number of videos, but there's a four-part series uh, that will reiterate much of what I mentioned today. Uh, and you'll be able to uh, get more tips. But I think quitting smoking was a good idea on your part. I also am a two-time smoking quitter, last time in 1992. So I think the further away you get from that, uh, the better off you are. They also do recommend uh, low-dose CT uh, chest uh, surveillance scans for people who have a, a more uh, recent history of smoking. So um, last question, um, you mentioned turmeric. How yeah. about curcumin, which is, I think, the, the most active yeah. in turmeric? Yeah, cur curcumin is the active ingredient in turmeric, which we believe uh, is uh, the potent moiety that is anti-inflammatory and probably has some anti-cancer activity. It depends on how holistic you want to be. Some people say, well, turmeric, it's sort of like taking the THC out of the cannabis and thinking that's the same thing. You know, the the 400 other chemical compounds in the cannabis are there for a reason. Some people say the same about turmeric, but I will confess that I do take a curcumin product myself. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And with that, that concludes our Q&A. Thank you very much for, uh, for your time. Um, we would like to also allow the audience to uh, to thank you as well. So we're going to unmute for uh, for ten seconds or so. So. Him and Kate staying up late. Informative. Doing good work in the world.